Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions of space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, a fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and it's that time again. You're about to listen to episode 10, our final episode of season two. But before I intro this episode, I want to thank Paul Unger and his team at Placetech for being our media partner and covering each of our episodes this season. Special thanks goes out to Jason Allen Scott and Brett Farmer from a podcast company who do all the behind the scenes work to make us sound good and who've enabled us to be downloaded in 47 countries. I also want to thank each of my guests this season for joining me remotely during this difficult time. Shout out to Samantha McClary from EG, Jonathan Weinbrand from Bespoke, The Godfather, Duke Long, the most connected woman in commercial real estate, Susan Freeman. Annie Rinker, who's rolling out space as a service across the Heinz Global Portfolio. My friend, Ryan Simonetti. The Bulgarian All-American, Boris Svetkova. Super cool developer, Jacob Loftus, and award-winning architect turned developer, Martin Prince Parrot. Now in this episode, I've asked Tushar Agarwal, CEO of Hubble HQ, to join me for a discussion on the future of the office. Five years ago, Tushar and I spoke on the same panel at the London School of Economics for the 2015 Coworking London Conference. Back then, we were talking about the new economy and third place, but we certainly didn't predict a global pandemic. Today, once again, we'll be talking about the changing demands for the office, and it's a good time to ask whether the office is dead. But more importantly, Tushar answers that question with data, and we go on to discuss how commercial real estate will change and why brand has never been more important. As always, if you have any questions or feedback on this episode or topics you want covered, hit me up on Twitter at Caleb underscore Parker or email podcast at workbold.co. Now, whether you're running along the bay in Sydney, sipping coffee in Toronto, taking a stroll in the English countryside, hustling in New York City through your morning commute, stuck in traffic along the M25 in London, or wherever you are listening to this episode, thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the chat. Welcome back to the Work Bold Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and today I'm talking with my friend Tushar Agarwal, co-founder and CEO of Hubble HQ, which is the leading online marketplace for finding and renting office space in London for fast-growing companies and flex space operators and landlords. Tushar studied economics at LSE, the London School of Economics, and spent two years working in investment banking before launching Hubble HQ back in 2014. He was Amazon's Young Entrepreneur of the Year finalist in 2019 and has led Hubble's growth as they've gone on to raise 6.4 million pounds over three rounds from the likes of JLL, Pylabs run by famous PropTech investor Faisal Butt, Downing Ventures, Starwood Capital, and Concrete, shout out to Taylor. Just to list a few of Hubble's accolades, they are Deloitte's 26th fastest growing technology company in the United Kingdom, Property Week's PropTech Innovator of the Year for 2019, and last year, they were voted as one of the best places to work in property for a second year running. So they know something about attracting top talent. Welcome to the Workable Podcast, Tashar. Hey, Caleb. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for joining me. Really appreciate it. Uh, I want to start off with the first question. First off, on your website, you talk about Office Search Alchemy. What is that? Yeah, really good question. Um, Office Search Alchemy uh, is us basically uh, creating a science which feels like magic uh, for, the, for the customer and the consumer around Office Search. Um, and there's three key components to that alchemy. The first is tech. Um, so we basically, we apply 
technology to pretty much every point of office search or or finding customers for your office space if you're a landlord. And we try and tech enable those interactions so they start to feel like magic. The second element is data. Uh, so we basically are data led. Um, we we have the largest data, we have the largest flex office market data set in London. Um, and the third aspect is is people. Um, so whilst we're whilst we're tech and data enabled, uh, we still believe that people are a crucial and really important part of the real estate uh, experience. And so we combine that tech and data with people. And the result of that is is this feeling of of a of an office search science, which kind of feels like magic. And when something feels like magic, you know that it feels good, but you don't quite know um, you know where it came from. And that's the sort of that's the the lofty goal that we try and reach. Uh, whenever we're building our product and our service for our customers. Okay, that makes sense. So you're an online marketplace, uh, removing friction from the office search. So uh, that leads me to my next question. Um, so in terms of your platform, can you talk about some of the stats of the amount of space that you have that you cover in London, The maybe the average size of transactions or the number of inquiries you, you facilitate through the, through the platform? Yeah, sure. Um, so we are London's largest online marketplace for renting office space. We have around somewhere between 30,000 to 40,000 searches every month. Um, and that results in, you know, thousands or hundreds of inquiries, depending on where you are in the year. Um, and so on, on the demand side, we pretty much have, you know, uh, nearly every startup or SME in particular searching on Hubble and, you know, the first destination that they search for Hubble. Um, if you Google Office Space London, we're also the number one result on Google as well. Um, on the on the, how much space that we have, uh, we pretty much got nearly every uh, flexible office provider in London on the platform. And by that, we sort of include uh, the really big brands that you guys will know about, the Regis's, WeWorks of the world. Um, we've got also a ton of independent brands. So we've got about 400 independent brands. Um, and those independent brands could be um, providers like Fora or those who have sort of three three buildings or less. Uh, we've also got a bunch of companies that are subletting uh, excess space. So in the past, we've had Telefonica subletting excess space. We've had uh, really high growth startups uh, like GoCardless and Songking subletting space as well. And we've also got some more interesting places like like converted churches and, and cafes. Um, so anywhere that can rent you um, office space, irrespective of whether uh, you're a church or a real office building, we've, we've got you on the platform. Um, and that results in around... Um, 5,000 to 6,000 unique listings at any point in time. Um, and we're, we're pretty proud to, to say that we've probably got the most up-to-date availability in the market. And so if you come onto our website, there's an over 90% chance that what you're seeing on the website is available right now. Okay. So in regards to the requirement sizes and the transactions that you're completing on, are you managing, you know, obviously pre-pandemic, uh, before you know the past couple of months, but leading up to the 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 coronavirus, what sort of transactions were you seeing? Are you getting sort of entrepreneurs and SMEs coming in with you know one, two, three, four person or desk requirements, or are you working with a lot of fast growing companies and who have 30, 100, 250 desk requirements? So um, our average transaction size on Hubble has been growing at around I'd say thirty to forty percent year on year for the past three to four years. Um, and the, the driver behind that is 
you know, nothing special that we're doing. Obviously, we like to think we are doing something special, but actually the, the bigger driver of that is the market itself. Um, so, you know, we've been operating within the flex market for the last six years. And in the beginning, the flex market was really dominated by really small businesses, micro businesses, freelancers, um, and, a turn of, and a certain type of SME that would say take on a, a Regis office. Um, but what we've seen in the past five to six years, especially in the last 24 to 24 to 48 months, um, is, that, is, the, is that the traditional SMEs or even the traditional larger corporates who would have, got, who would have gone for a three-year lease or a five-year lease, um, they're now opting for more and more flexibility. So they're now uh, liking managed products, so products from the likes of Notel, uh, from the you know, WeWork's own managed product, Regis's own managed product. Um, and what we started to see is that average transaction size come up and more and more traditional SMEs start taking on that space. So our bread and butter in the last 12 months started to become businesses with somewhere between 20 to 30 people taking on a space for about a year. Um, and if you compare that to what it was in 2014 when we first started, that average was more like um, a business of three people taking on desks for three months. And you can see just see that transformation of our business, but also the transformation of the market in just five to six years as well. So being an online platform and facilitating that many inquiries and transactions, you must have a lot of data. Can you share how you use that data and maybe what you learned from it? Yeah, absolutely. So we have probably the most comprehensive set of data around London SME office search. Um, and the reason for that is that every interaction on the Hubble website is tech enabled. So um, all the way from initially what you search for. So essentially you could search for something like 10 desks in Mayfair, um, but you might end up taking on say 12 desks um, in Southwark. And the way that you get there would be a journey where you're basically looking for something, you're updating your own preferences by educating yourself on the market. And then you're actually managing to fit yourself into, into something else. So um, just by tracking that search and user behavior, uh, we learn quite a lot around what people want, how people actually behave versus what they say they want. Um, and we can really distill a lot of those data points. And we, try, we basically offer up those data points uh, to our landlords and our operators to help them understand what occupiers want, how occupiers' needs are changing, how they're evolving, um, what the market looks like in terms of, uh, say, list price versus transaction price. Um, and, and I think, you know, our, 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 our view from the beginning has been how do we, how do we allow uh, landlords to start understanding their customers a lot better? And whilst there's, you know, there's a lot of media, there's a lot of user research interviews you can do, um, it's really difficult to beat just hard data uh, from a high volume of data points over a series of time when you're trying to profile customers. And, and when landlords and office providers are making really expensive decisions around, hey, I'm going to open up a new flex space, it's going to cost me you know, within, the, within the millions of pounds to basically fit this space out. Should I have, a, should I have 10 uh, three-person office units or should, I have, um, you know, or should I have much larger office units? Should I have you know, X percent co-working and X percent private offices? Um, or should the whole thing just be private offices? And a lot of times these decisions are informed by sort of mystery shopping or benchmarking. And we try and give the real data behind what people are looking for uh, to try and, in, you know, to try and basically reduce the risk that um, those landlords and operators make the wrong decision. Okay, so let's go ahead and 
talk about the elephant in the room. Uh, we are in a pandemic. Um, office demand seems to have plummeted. Um, and it's a question about people going back into the office. Um, and as an online marketplace that facilitates these transactions, how has it been for you the last couple of months? Um, the last few months, as pretty much anyone and everyone in our market has been the worst market we've seen um, you know, in our careers. And for me personally, as a CEO, um, for our company, it's, it's been really tough. You know, as soon as we entered a physical lockdown, people stopped going into offices. Um, and around end of March and all of April, uh, the market, the office rental market in London was pretty much non-existent. Um, however, what we have started to see is some uh, recovery in that market. So we started to see inquiry levels uh, pick up by 100% between April and May. Uh, we then started to see them pick up again by about 75% between May and June. Um, and we're looking at probably a similar level of inquiries, maybe even slightly higher level of inquiries in July compared to June. Uh, so things are starting to pick up, um, but it, it has been hard and it's been hard for, for everyone in the market. Well, it's fantastic to hear you're seeing new activity now. Are these inquiries more for immediate occupancy or are they for future dates? So it's kind of a mix, really. Um, a lot of a lot of the a lot of the transactions are being driven by 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 lease triggers or or events. So you'll have some people who, especially in a flex contract, are coming up to their break or coming up to the end of the contract, and the companies are trying to figure out: Are they going to downsize? Are they going to move somewhere else? Are they going going to look for a better deal? Um, we also have some people who have decided that they're going to actually go fully remote until the end of the year. So you have some people who are getting out of leases, but then actually taking on uh, additional space from January next year. Um, but I think probably the, the most, uh, you know, the most common sort of transaction we're seeing is something for, for a hybrid office. So uh, we are seeing people who want some sort of central HQ for their team. Perhaps that footprint is, uh, you know, 60, 70% of what it was before. Sometimes it's 30% of what it was before. Um, but they still want access to their team for their team to access other spaces as well. Um, so what we used to see as a bread and butter standard transaction three or four months ago, pre-COVID, that sort of transaction has all but, all but disappeared. But you are starting to see some activity in the market and people still want to rent some form of office space. Uh, but I think we're still a little bit of a while away from seeing a new normal. Well, I'm going to challenge you on that uh, people wanting an office phrase you just use is because as, as Anthony Slumber says, you know, they want a productive workforce and I believe they want to be successful. So what they need is solutions to help them be successful. Um, and so what do you think those solutions look like? Yeah, look, um, you know, we 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 believe that's that's 100 percent true. Um, and what we've been trying to work out is, is, you know, what what is that level of office space in the past? Three months, you started to see a huge amount of media hype around, is the office dead? This is the death of the office. Um, and then you started to see um, a lot of the PR agencies of the property market start kicking into gear um, and go the opposite way, saying it's not the death of the office. The office is more important than it was ever before. And things are going to go back to normal uh, you know, within the next six months. Um, and the reality is that it's actually going to be somewhere in between. Um, and we ran a survey with over a thousand employees and hundreds of businesses in London. Um, and, you know, about 70 percent of them said that they had a positive work from home experience. Uh, but also another 70 percent said that they still wanted an office of some sort. 
Um, and when you when you dig into the reasons why seventy uh, percent of them said they loved working from home, but also seventy percent said that they wanted an office of some sort, the key reasons are really around um, collaboration. Uh, they're around you know socializing, collaborating with your colleagues. They're around meeting clients. People feel that they should be meeting clients face to face rather than virtually um, and on Zoom. Um, but also about you know forty one percent of that survey also said that people just wanted a quiet place to do focused work because the home environment was not conducive to them being productive. Um, and they just wanted uh, an environment that's going to give them, you know, the right desk, the right environment to do quiet focused work. So it's not just about collaboration. Um, and, and, you know, all those preferences also differ pretty drastically by your own individual situation. So, you know, if you are, um, if you're slightly older and you live in the suburbs and, um, you know, it's a more than one hour commute to get into town, then, you know, you, you definitely want to, you're definitely more likely to want to stay at home and work from home. But if you're say under 30 years old, you already live in London. Um, and you know, your company and your job was actually your main point of social activity. You're then dying to get back to the office. Um, and it also then starts to differ by your role. So, you know, there's some roles that are, that are more conducive to an office or team environment than others. Um, you know, sales teams are a really good example of that. Most people from a from a from a sales background actually used to play a lot of team sports when they were younger, or even at university. Uh, and sales is almost a commercialization of of the team sport, where being in a room together, you have that sort of competitive tension, which starts to get the best out of people. Um, and we have our own sales team, for example, voluntarily wanted to go to the office so they can start to recreate that environment. It's really hard to get yourself motivated as a salesperson um, if you're on your own. Um, so th there's a huge amount of variance in, in why people want an office. But what I would say is that the office, as we did know it, so you know, a place that you go to work Monday to Friday, nine to five, that office is dead. However, the need for a, the need for a physical place uh, to do work outside of your home that need is still very much uh, going to be huge over the next sort of five to 10 years. Um, although we still believe that, you know, working from home will become a permanent component of work, um, it's not going to be become 100% of work. I like that statement about the death of the office. Uh, a lot of people have said that recently. And I've been saying on this podcast this season, it's not binary. You said it's something in between, and I, I like the word hybrid. And I think the key thing here is people need choice. I think I think we may call this episode the office is dead, comma, quote, the office, unquote, is not dead because the office as we knew it is dead. But like you say, the office of the future post covid is something completely different. It's solutions based. But um, I have a question. So a lot of people in commercial real estate are predicting post pandemic demand for office space to remain the same but with less density in office footprints. So do, do you think people will actually pay more for the same amount of space for less people? Look, I think, I think that may happen in the very short term. So I think that there's, there's a couple of things. Firstly, people talk about pre-COVID and post-COVID, but no one talks about in-COVID. In-COVID is what we're in right now. We're not in post-COVID just yet. And the in-COVID will last for an indeterminate amount of time. This is this sort of, per, you know, this almost almost semi-permanent semi, semi -permanent, um, sort of 
Yeah, permanent till it's not. Um, and it's a semi, you know, this, this sort of like gray area that we're all living in uh, for a long time. And yeah, you might see in the short term when there is a health pandemic that um, for those businesses that require or greatly encourage people to go into work. Um, and, you know, if you want a real life example of that, you, all you have to do is look at Sir Alan Sugar's uh, Twitter feed, um, who says that, you know, he still believes that everyone should come into work, you know, nine to five. Um, and, and this, you know, working from home will never work for those businesses that require that to happen. Yes, of course, you will have offices which which implement social distancing measures. However, um, when you go back to what you were describing before is the purpose of the office and the reason why people want to leave their homes and come in. It's not to do quite focused work two meters away from everywhere else. It's really to come in um, and collaborate with their colleagues um, and, you know, meet with their clients and communicate properly. You know, about 60, 70 percent of communication is a nonverbal communication. So you're basically missing out on, on that percentage of communication by talking on Zoom. Um, and people want to, you know, people want to engage with each other as humans. And so if you are coming to an office which is less dense, you're away from everyone, uh, you pretty much work in silence, you have to shout over to someone to communicate with them. I don't think that's a post-COVID office. I think that's an in-COVID office for businesses that, that require their, their workers to come in. Okay, so how would you define or, or what is the definition of a post-COVID office? What do you think the future office looks like? Good question. I think that definition would be the unbundled office. Um, so what I mean by the unbundled office is um, it will be you having having one physical destination that everyone goes to, everyone in your company goes to on a regular basis. Um, that's going to that's going to become significantly decreased. What you're going to have is you're going to have a semi distributed workforce where people are maybe meeting in in one location as a full company once a month. So if you look at our survey, the majority of people wanted to meet their whole company once a month. But they wanted to be their direct team once or twice a week. Um, and so there may be one centralized HQ where people come and meet, but actually there would be sort of a network of, of spaces where people go to do specific activities, whether that's to do a meeting, whether that's to do an event, whether that's to meet a client, whether that's to do quiet focused work. Um, and there'll be this sort of like unbundling that starts to happen within the market. And I talk about the unbundling because actually we've seen almost the reverse for the past 10 years, which is the bundling of the office, which is putting everything that you could possibly want under one roof. Um, and that's, you know, when we talk about the blurring of um, life and work, um, what you've seen is that you've seen life come into the workplace. And that was kind of pioneered by Google and the Silicon Valley firms 10 years ago. And I think what you're going to see now is a, is a strong reversal of that trend where uh, you'll see a lot of work to be done from home. A lot of people stay home longer, uh, but then they'll go to specific places to do specific activities. And you'll start to see this trend that we've seen around the hotelification of workspace. So, if, if, you know, you've seen sort of um, the brands like WeWork and Regis and these guys pop up and they've started to become the Hilton and the Marriott and the W of of office space, the brands stand for something, whether that's trust or credibility or you know one place for everything. You'll start to see uh, the unbundling start to happen, and you'll start to see maybe these offices become more like gyms and fitness studios. So you know, if you join a Virgin gym, you have everything under one roof. You have fitness classes, you have a swimming pool, you have gym equipment. You can do any activity you want to under one roof. 
But actually, if you go to fitness class like One Rebel or Barry's Bootcamp, you go there for a specific type of workout or a specific type of activity. And I think you'll start to see uh, spaces open up which cater to a specific type of activity. Um, and I think for me personally, the best place to really take advantage of that are people like Convene. So if you think about what Convene is, Convene is a reimagined uh, ETC venues, which is sort of a, a conference and meeting facility that's bookable upon demand. And I think you'll start to see a lot of those new brands be created and do really well out of this as well. Um, and that's kind of what I mean by the unbundled office. You know, your, your hotelification phrase reminds me of a blog post I wrote back in 2012 where I called for a global distribution uh, uh, system for uh, the workspace as a service industry uh, or now space as a service industry. And it was a focus on uh, more hourly and daily bookings. And I'm just wondering, now that remote work uh, has gone mainstream, do you think that we'll see a significant demand for daily or even hourly bookings for work and meeting space? Um, yes and no. So again, going back to our survey, you know, we surveyed people and asked them whether they would like to work in different places on different days, whether they like to work in the same space most days. And, and typically, same space most days and different places different days was about, was about roughly the same. Um, so people are still creatures of habit. Whilst they may like variety, in the end, they ended up sticking to the similar sort of places. So I think you will start to see more demand for, uh, for uh, you know, hourly or daily bookings. Um, but you'll still see that you'll still see those HQs. And I think I think the, the biggest barrier that on demand bookings has seen um, over the past couple of years and people have been trying to make this work for quite a while. It's just the, it's just the price you've got to pay. So the price you've got to pay for the amount of flexibility around booking a space for a day or um, or an hour. Um, if you book, if you want to book that space with a high enough frequency um, and you're happy to go to the same location, you're better off just taking an office. Um, so I think in order for that to work, you're firstly going to have to have a huge amount of variety. And secondly, the prices are going to have to make sense. And for the prices to make sense, that all goes back to how the landlords and the operators work and how they price that sort of space. So I think there will be demand, but I think it's still going to take a bit, little bit of transition to be able to get there. Um, and, and initially... You know, the, the initial period will just be this bifurcation between traditional office and home. And then over the longer term, you'll start to see more and more of this unbundling as people start to work out what that new normal is. Well, in, you know, going back to that blog post, um, what I sort of thought was that corporate real estate departments will shift from sort of managing the square feet in their portfolio or square meters in their portfolio to managing workspace reservations. Because if you think about um, the fact that people are working from home and they only need to come in for meetings a couple of days a week, then why would they pay for um, a space that they're not using all the time? So I thought in the hospitality industry, or in if you think about hotelification in the hotel industry, you have travel management companies. And these travel management companies, what they do is, is they manage the spin for these corporates and their employees. And often they'll give the employees an app that um, only has suppliers of hotel rooms that fit within the corporate's requirements. So it might be duty of care, it could be a service level, or it could be pricing and budget. So if we translate that into commercial real estate, you know, perhaps we'll see uh, commercial real estate agents in that world um, taking on these new uh, commercial real estate management services 
uh, that looks more like these travel management companies. I think, yeah, I, I think, I think, yeah, I think you're you're definitely onto something. I think that thesis has, as you said, has been around for a while. Um, I think a lot of predictions in real estate um, have been perhaps a little bit too early, and that basically comes down to how how slow it is in practical terms to to evolve physical real estate and physical business models. You know, when you're building an office building and when you're financing that building, you have to, you've got to come up with a business plan. Um, and that, if that business plan says that there's going to be 10, 15 years of predictable income from one blue chip occupier, that building is much easier to finance and build. Uh, but when you say that demand will actually be a lot more variable, it'll be, um, it'll be less predictable um, and you'll have to basically aggregate a huge amount of smaller transactions to make up what you would have got from the from the larger um, from the larger occupier. That diff- that building is a lot harder to build and finance, and that business model has to be rethought. So I think I think I do agree with you that that's going to come, um, but you know it's still going to take some time to get there. Totally, I get that. Valuation methodology will absolutely need to evolve, and I think that's where the data becomes so important. Uh, yeah, I think um, I think you know I think for, for us for us the the point of differentiation for us always since the beginning has been technology to make interactions a lot smoother, a lot faster, um, and data to add trust. And I think you know the traditional property industry before we came along was working perfectly well because you know you had you had traditional agents um, who were advising a lot of the large corporates and working for them as trusted advisors and consultants on transactions that were non-standard. But I think as the transactions, as you mentioned, become um, higher higher velocity, the market becomes more fragmented, um, and the transactions become more standardized, there's a much higher need for technology and data to facilitate and enable that. And that's really the, the big macro trend that we've been betting on for the past six years. Okay, Tushar, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit. Um, this week, it was announced that Columbia Property Trust, which is a Manhattan landlord, they just took back control of a 115,000 square foot WeWork space. So they had it leased out the WeWork, they've taken it back. Do you expect, considering all the issues around WeWork, but put that aside, in general, do you expect more of this to happen? And if so, are landlords going to operate the space themselves? That's a that's a really good question. Um, there's there's a couple of, there's a couple of different ways to think about that. So, firstly, you know that's that that example is specific to WeWork. Um, we're all, all aware of you know the the turmoil that WeWork has had over the past sort of six months or year. Um, so, I think I think for landlords, there may be sort of a risk assessment they need to take around. You know, is this a risky operator or is this a trusted operator? And maybe they perceive that to be a risky operator or they just can't get the commercials that they need. So, you know, maybe there's a risk play there uh, where they're managing downside. And I think you may start to see that with other landlords who are starting to manage, trying to manage their downside of is this operator blue chip or are they going to default? And if they're if there's a high risk, that's going to happen. We'll take back the space. So I think that's I think that's the downside case. Uh, I think the upside case is, well, hey, you know, if we work can make um, 200, 300% margin per, on a per square foot basis compared to what we were we are making by letting space to them. Maybe we want some of that upside as well. Um, and maybe we back ourselves to either uh, do that ourselves um, or bring in an operator that could, we can enter a, you know, a JV on a revenue or profit share uh, with, similar to what's been going on with in, in hotel models. 
So I think you will start to see a lot more landlords embrace that. And and for the downside risk, the upside, the upside opportunity. Uh, but also, I think what's starting to happen is that you are now starting to see those traditional landlords whose bread and butter was the 10, 15 year office leases start to understand and respond to uh, flexible and space as a service as something that's going to become mainstream. And, you know, for me, the, the, one of the biggest surprises was a couple of months ago, we had British land who publicly came out and said that uh, they're going to go harder on flex within their portfolio. You've seen LNG, Legal in General, who have recently announced that they're going to actually expand their capsule, their flex brand pretty aggressively as well. And so I think, I think there's, there's a real understanding from the landlords that actually if they want further control of the future, they need to be working on that directly. Uh, but the question mark is who operates that space? Because really operations is a really complex thing to do. As a landlord, you know, you're not used to doing that. You're used to outsourcing that. And so either you're going to invest in your own operational capability and build out those own, your own brands. Uh, the way that someone like British Land has done it is pretty interesting because um, their story model uh, still really caters for those medium-sized businesses that doesn't need that much hospitality. So they can do that themselves if they want to. Um, or they'll, they'll start to outsource that hospitality bit. And that's, again, another really interesting part of the market. Do you outsource the hospitality to a well-known flex brand? Um, like a WeWork or a Fora or a Convene or whatever that may be? Or do you outsource it to your traditional broker? So do you give that over to HANA? Do you give that over to Jones Lang? Do you give that over to Savills or Colliers, all of whom are creating solutions in this market? Um, and that will be really based on um, a case-by-case basis on, on the landlords, on what their own risk appetite is and whether they back themselves to, to really operate. Um, but it also be driven within the portfolio as well. So there'll be some sites which they're more than capable of handling themselves, especially if they're a sort of 5,000 square foot unit, which can be let out on a cat A or cat B for one or two years versus, say, a 100,000 square foot site, uh, which has multiple private offices um, and, you know, multiple hot desking or co-working memberships, which may need, um, you know, a full on operator, which can be a little bit more um, high touch in how they do things. So I think it's going to be super, super interesting, but I am still very, very bullish on the hotelification of the market. And I think those sorts of examples really start to really start to solidify that trend. Look, I think what what British Land's done with Story is great. Uh, Even this week, Derwent's just made an announcement about how they're approaching Flex. And, you know, I think all this is progress. Um, But I think uh, also that uh, Flex, while that is absolutely 100 percent needed. Uh, going forward in commercial real estate, and and I just talked about this uh, on a previous episode with Jacob Loftus. Um, flex is great, but when we talk about building valuations and long-term value, the way uh, buildings are valued today, which obviously needs to change, uh, I think we cannot forget about the service aspect because when you bring in flexibility, um, what's going to keep somebody there? Service. So to me, um, service is absolutely uh, imperative, and it ra- it gets wrapped around a brand. Because every asset has a different business plan and strategy. So it's, it's crucial to understand what the dynamics of, of those are to determine uh, how you bring in services and what brand solution that you, that you bring into that asset. And, and I have a, a strong opinion that generic spaces lack brand loyalty, they lack consistency, and they have zero network effect. But if you bring in a specific brand 
uh, to an asset. It adds layers of service. It can attract the right mix of customers and create new revenue lines and ultimately drive value in that asset. Yeah, I think I think I, I agree with that, but I'd, I'd also slightly I'd also slightly disagree in the sense that if you look at again going back to the hotel market, um, every hotel brand has or at least tries to have their own point of differentiation. So when you go to the Four Seasons, you know you're buying super high touch, luxury, you know, once in a lifetime sort of experience. When you go to the Marriott or the Hilton on a business trip. At that point in time, you're buying consistency and trust. You know that it will be okay. You know that you know that it will fit your needs, but it's not somewhere that you'll desire to go to. And then you also have the no frills, you know, travel lodges of the world, the premier inns of the world, who still manage manage to build really good businesses because their brand positioning is: look, this is no frills. The level of service and hospitality is low, but we make up for that in price. And and really. Um, what I'm getting at here is that I agree that the, the sort of a generic box to fill is not going to be where this market goes. And you will get left behind as a landlord if you have a generic box to fill. But there's definitely lots and lots of pockets of opportunity and differentiation across that brand. I'm sorry, across the market uh, to create your own, your own edge um, and your own brand. Are you going to be the cheap, no frills travel lodge? Or are you going to be Four Seasons? And actually, irrespective of that, there's customers for both of you. Um, but you just got you just got to really nail what you stand for in that market. And when you talk about us displaying the brands on our website, um, that's the main reason we do it because you know we can tell you what the amenities of the space are. But in general, the amenities are sometimes pretty pretty common. Um, what allows you to differentiate between a WeWork and a Regis and a Fora and a Runway East? Um, and a converted church sometimes is the brand, sometimes is the imagery what they stand for. Very much like hotels, and you know, it's horses for courses. People will transact in what they believe is the right thing for their business, um, and maybe they'll transact on multiple brands at what point in time as well. To sure, I don't think we disagree at all on this. Uh, what I just heard from you is, and and agree with, is that brand matters because brand positioning is a promise to the customer of a predictable experience. Take bold for example. You know, we believe in challenging the status quo. We love entrepreneurial thinkers and innovators, you know, people like us. We're natural problem solvers ourselves, and, and we're, we're passionate about making a difference in the world like our customers are. And many of our customers are techie and savvy, and because we embrace mobile technology, our work isn't restricted to a static location. I personally learned long ago, a long time ago, that I didn't need to go into an office to work. I could work anywhere. So when I chose to go into an office or when I choose to go into an office, I want a place that's going to make me feel inspired and taken care of. So our bold spaces are tech-enabled with a premium funky design and a layer of hospitality. But the bold brand isn't for every customer, and it certainly doesn't work for every asset. And that's okay because bold's part of Newflex, and Newflex operates a range of brands from value brands to premium brands to in-between. So to me, it's really about creating that predictable experience that comes with a brand. That's actually what keeps paying customers in a building, not long leases. Okay, brilliant. And I guess the, 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 the final point on that, given the situation where we are you know, in, in COVID, is that every one of those spaces is going to be, have to be better than being at home. So either that's a better, quiet, focused work environment 
where you prefer to do your desk work there rather than do your desk work from home, or it's an environment that caters to a particular sort of activity you want to do in your company that can't be done or you don't want to do at home. So that's around collaboration, meeting space, um, client meetings, et cetera, et cetera. So irrespective of what your brand positioning is, you've still got to be better than people sitting at home because that is your biggest competition now. Uh, just like, uh, you know, uh, you know, Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, was saying that the, their biggest competition, Netflix's biggest competition is not other streaming rivals. It, their biggest competition is sleep. Um, and just for, just for office brands, your biggest competition now is the home. Sounds like to me, Netflix needs to be selling coffee. So moving into the quick fire round, Tishar, um, you know how this works, just really quick answers uh, to these short questions. So the first question is, who inspires you in commercial real estate? Uh, good question. Can I give two answers to that? Um, I think first I have to really call out prop tech. Um, and I think the guys, at, the guys at BTS for me are a huge inspiration in prop tech. And the main reason for that is there's a lot of talking that happens. There's a lot of people talking the talk in prop tech, but also real estate in general. BTS is one of those companies consistently that not only talks the talk, but walks the walk. Um, and that's really been proven in their, in their traction so far. Um, so I think from a prop tech angle, they, those guys really inspire me. Um, and if I were to build a business, if I were to have you know, a North Star around, what would I want my business to look like? BTS is certainly up there. Um, but I think on, on, the second, on the second sort of strand of people who inspire me, I think real estate, we forget, and the built environment in general has a real opportunity to make people feel something. Um, and what we've, you know, a lot of times real estate is, is, is basically just viewed as putting people in a box. Can you put people in this real estate box? Can you put people in this office box? Can you put people in this residential box? But actually a lot of the people who think about real estate as a way to foster human feeling, communication, um, are actually a lot of the, the architects and interior designers. Uh, so for me, people like Frank Gehry and Thomas Heatherwick um, as architects have always been people who have inspired me because every time I look at what they built, it makes me feel something. Um, and they really take the opportunity for real estate to be art. Um, and, and I think the more people we can have in real estate that think in that way, which I think is becoming few and far between, uh, the more inspirational real estate becomes. And I think you can actually improve the world pretty significantly as well by taking that angle on what you're building. Okay, next question. What industry podcast or websites do you consume? Um, I, I, I pretty much read everything real estate, um, local mags in the UK, Property Week, EG. Um, Biz Now, I think, actually has a – they came in pretty recently the last couple of years ago, but I think they have a really good roundup that I read almost every day. Um, in terms of podcasts, uh, the Fifth Wall podcast has been pretty good, um, although I think they've been lacking consistency lately. But I, you know, whenever they put out content, it's super, super high quality. Um, Caleb, obviously I'll be listening to your podcast. You've had some great guests and some people I know as well on here. Um, and, and I guess on the tech side, I listen to, um, Andreessen Horowitz, which is a big VC firm over in San Francisco. Uh, they have a lot of great thought leadership around how specific sectors um, are innovating. Um, and in the UK, uh, I listen very frequently to, uh, secret leaders, uh, which is a podcast by my friend, Daniel Murray. Um, and he's interviewing, uh, leaders of tech businesses, but in general, but actually, you know, businesses in general, and he really digs deep underneath, underneath the veneer to get to, you know, what was that story really like? 
And what I really love about that podcast is that it's really getting rid of the glorification of entrepreneurship and really exposing just how difficult these stories are. You know, overnight success is typically 10 years of hard work uh, and lots of heartbreak, but the media will portray it as that. And so Secret Leaders is, is a massive recommendation from me as well. And too short, on a lighter note, what is your favorite holiday destination? My, my favorite holiday activity now has become scuba diving. Um, I think I've always been someone who, for some reason, likes to be submerged in water. I find it has a, a cleansing and calming effect like no other. So last year, I went scuba diving in Belize, which was, um, you know, absolutely incredible. Um, I also sort of was half scuba diving, half doing marine conservation around um, the lionfish, which are wrecking the coral reef over there. And I learned so much about, you know, the ecosystem. And when you go underwater, you do sort of enter this whole new world and you're kind of, you know, there for an hour. It's probably the best form of meditation you can do. And I've done so far. Uh, but my, the top of my list for the next trip, whenever we're allowed to start flying and travel again, is, uh, is an island called Sipadan Island in Malaysia, uh, which has some of the best scuba diving um, I've ever sort of heard about. So I think that's really top of my list for the next one. Tashar, thank you so much for joining the show today. I know it's a difficult time, so appreciate you coming on in this virtual environment. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much, Caleb. And thanks so much for uh, you know putting this podcast out. I think these conversations needed to be had. Um, I think for me, I'd like to send a message out to the rest of the real estate industry, particularly the office sector. Um, I know that these are really tough times. We've had the toughest time we've ever had. I'm sure you guys have as well. Um, I personally think that there's a huge amount of opportunity and excitement around the corner. And the more that we can work together, the more that we can collaborate, the more we can solve these problems together and create a, you know, a new, better built environment. Um, and so I, I would encourage, you know, if, if you, you know, if anyone wants to have a chat, wants to see how we can work together, please feel free to get in touch. Um, and please do come on to Caleb's podcast um, and talk about, you know, your own views of, of what's going to happen in the future as well. What a great message to share. Be sure to follow Tushar on Twitter. That's at I am Tush, I-A-M-T-O-O-S-H. And I echo Tushar's optimism as we look ahead into the future of commercial real estate. Thank you for listening to this episode and for joining me all season. This concludes season two of the Work Bold podcast. Stay tuned for details for season three to be released in the near future. And in the meantime, I'll continue talking space as a service on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you own or manage a real estate asset or portfolio and want advice or help to deliver space as a service for your customers, let's have a chat. And don't forget, fortune favors the bold. You're listening to a Podcast Company podcast. This was made by Podcast Syndicator, where we help you go from start to grow to making money with your podcast. Let us help you share your message and your voice with the world. Reach out now, Jason at podcastsyndicator.com or Brett at podcastsyndicator.com to find out more. Thank you for listening and do come back to hear nothing but the best podcasts.